This is Joshua Holland for The Nation, and I'm joined now by Deb Holland. Deb is running for Congress in New Mexico's first congressional district. Thank you for taking the time. Um, now, you're not one of the many people running for office for the first time in response to Trump's election. You ran for lieutenant governor in 2014. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how, how you first got into politics? Sure. So I have for, gosh, probably almost the last 20 years, I I have worked on various campaigns. I started out as a phone, you know, as a phone volunteer. I'd go into campaign offices, ask for lists of Native American voters and just start calling people because I felt that I just wanted to help more, you know, help our cause, help more Native folks get to the polls. That ended up turning into sort of a full-blown you know, organizing Indian country for me. And um, so I, I worked on a lot of campaigns focused on that. And then in 2012, I was the state Native American vote director for President Obama's reelection campaign. And uh, I helped, you know, I helped us to, to win New Mexico. And um, so that's been a passion of mine for a long time is just making sure people get to the polls. And so uh, here I am. After uh, I worked for the president, I, uh, that's when I decided to run for lieutenant governor. And then after I, we lost our general election, I decided I would um, run for state chairwoman of the Democratic Party. I won and we, we won our elections across the state in 2016. So uh, I was proud of that. Good work. Now, you're running on a very bold, progressive platform. Some of us think that that's very nice to see. Uh, can you tell us about your top, I don't know, two or three priorities to help working people? Sure. Well, I, you know, the top priority for me, and it's one that resonates real well in this district, is uh, climate change and renewable energy. I think that if we had a renewable energy revolution, not only in New Mexico's District 1, but across the country, that that would create thousands and thousands of good-paying, sustainable jobs. And so that's, uh, that's the, you know, for me, the number one issue. The set, um, you know, one of the other top issues is Medicare for All, of course. Everybody needs to have health care. And yesterday, uh, President Trump and the Republicans uh, worked overtime to make sure that uh, Planned Parenthood has a has a harder time in in helping women to get the care they need, and so I I want to go to Congress to fight for that to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to get the care that they need. Folks, check out Deb's website for all of her issue areas. It's debforcongress.com, and she has a really um, again a bold progressive mm -hmm. platform. She's calling for universal pre-K, paid family leave, the types of things that make, you know, make capitalism work. I mean, basically. Now, the first congressional district, it's mostly Albuquerque, right? It's it's urban, largely urban. It leans blue. Yes, yes. Uh, there is, it is, there is, Albuquerque is the largest city. We do, however, have uh, rural communities in District 1. We have some small towns to the east of Albuquerque, and I have one Native American community in my district. It's Tohajuli on the Navajo Nation. You know, I have to say that I love that area, by the way. It's it's so beautiful. I, um, I've, spent, I've spent a good amount of time down there. Uh, can you tell us, are there uh, local di issues in your district that folks from other parts of the country may not be thinking about? 
you know, I'm willing to bet that a lot of us are um, care about the same things. You, you know, women's reproductive rights are always on the chopping block, as as we saw that, you know, President Trump and, and the Republicans, you know, work on that daily, it seems like. So that's an issue. Um, I have stood with labor unions. It's whenever the Republicans have an opportunity, they're trying to make uh, New Mexico into a right-to-work state, and so I've been on the front lines fighting that for a long time. And, and of course, equality, making sure that everybody has a fair shot at, at getting, um, you know, ha- having success in, in their lives. And um, I, I am wholeheartedly against discrimination, against uh, against our trans women, against our um, members of the LGBTQ community. So um, I have been on the front lines, um, you know, fighting for equality for, for a long time as well. Now, just the other day, I was on I was on Twitter and a, a Native American, I think he was from Idaho. He He was telling me that he thought that Native Americans are kind of I think the way he put it was that he, he, he called them the forgotten people of color. And he said that in the, you know, discourse about marginalized communities, the focus tends to be on African-Americans or Latinos or um, like Asian and Pacific Islanders. And he thought that Native Americans over get overlooked. I think he was kind of lamenting the, the lack of what you might call intersectionality. Does that statement resonate with you? Yeah, yes, it does. Think about how long the water protectors at Standing Rock were fighting for their sacred lake and how long they were fighting before it got any news on any national media, right? We, um, if that, if something, I agree with him there because it does take a lot uh, for Native Americans to get recognized. And, and um, I think once Standing Rock kind of grabbed the attention of, of more folks, it did become a national issue, but it took a very long time. Likewise, uh, missing and murdered Native women. It happens so often, and n- nobody knows about it because it doesn't hit um, you know, mainstream media. And, and so I am, I've been working hard to raise those issues. I, um, they're, they've been trying to frack in Chaco Canyon here in New Mexico for a long time. That's my ancestral homeland. And, um, we have, I, one of the, one of the organizations, uh, I made it into a national issue, right? I, that's cause I talked about it a lot, uh, with the national press. And one of the organizations thanked me for raising it to a national issue. But but all of those issues, uh, we have to keep talking about them. We have to raise them to um, so that people know that those are things they should also care about, as well as you know, Black Lives Matter and 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 all of the discrimination and and targeting that happens every single day in this country. Native Americans are the lowest population uh, in our country, and they have the highest number of criminal cases in federal dis- in federal courts. So, uh, what does that tell you? Yeah, yeah. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Deb Holland. She's a candidate for New Mexico's first congressional district. It seems to me that one example of this of this kind of erasure of Native Americans is is that Donald Trump's um, 
nativism and bigoted views towards blacks and Latinos have gotten a ton of press, but he has really attacked Native Americans repeatedly and it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to get as much uh, attention. Uh, most recently, he, he directly challenged the sovereignty, um, or maybe we should call it quasi-sovereignty, of Native American nations. Uh, this was in the context of enacting work requirements for Medicaid mm-hmm. recipients. And the Trump regime claimed that Native American tribes constitute a racial category rather than a group that enjoys um, a measure of self-governance. He obviously calls Senator Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas, but this isn't new. His hostility toward Native Americans dates back to when some tribes on the East Coast opened casinos that competed with his um, Atlantic City properties. Uh, The Washington Post reported that in in 1993, Trump, um, and I'll, I'll quote here, told lawmakers that organized crime is rampant on Indian reservations. He predicted one of the biggest scandals since Al Capone. Um, Then he said that uh, a tribe that opened up the Foxwoods casino, quote, did not look like real Indians. It's uh, it's just, it it goes back a long way. It's not a new thing. No, it's it's absolutely shameful. It is. And I I think, you know, one of the reasons I I would... uh, be honored to go to Congress and would love to go to Congress is that I feel there's a lack of education about the history of our country. And clearly President Trump doesn't understand the trust responsibility that the United States government has toward tribes. Uh, We do have a government to government relationship with the tribes. Uh, We're not a special interest group. (laughs) We're not special interest groups. Uh, we're not a racial category. Uh, the U.S. government has a responsibility, and uh, they have a responsibility to provide health care. And um, so when we ask and, and we are advocating uh, to be exempt from various uh, things, right, like, like we can enroll, for example, we can enroll uh, through the Affordable Care Act any time of the year. We don't have to wait until... Um, the open enrollment period. If you're Native American, you can go and do that. And it's it's really because the U.S. government has that responsibility. So um, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't speak for Native Americans. He doesn't get to decide who is Native American. And so uh, I will always uh, use my, you know, my the way I was raised to be proud of who I am and to understand what my relationship uh, with the land and, and the water and, and all these things mean, I, I, I would be happy to, to bring that with me to Congress and, and help to educate um, some of these folks so that they understand it better. Deb, the, the statement that Trump doesn't know what he's talking about is is really that applies to a lot of different categories, I have to say. <laughs> Let me ask you this. So we have this unique situation, these vestiges of what amounts to a, a genocide against America's indigenous population. And that is these uh, this this nation, it's semi autonomous status with. Um, governments that are ultimately reliant or subordinate on the U.S. government. In, in what way does does that situation give 
Native Americans an experience that's distinct from other communities of color? And in what ways does that pose a unique challenge? Right. Well, as I mentioned, the U.S. government has a trust responsibility to tribes. And what that, what that means is when it, the Europeans first came to our country, this land was occupied. There were, I mean, right now there's over 500 tri- recognized tribes in the country. There were uh, far, far more than that. Uh, we, uh, this was our land. I mean, this was Indian land. And uh, slowly but surely, uh, the U.S. government continued to encroach across the country, and uh, so that's where uh, treaties came into play. Uh, where you know, when you think when, when you hear the the term reservation, um, that means when you know the Indians had a large swath of land, uh, and the U.S. government came in and said, "Well, we'll uh, we're going to take all this land and we'll reserve a small portion for you, and this is where you all can live." And uh, there were a lot of, of horrible eras in our in our country's history, like the allotment era, when they said, uh, for each tribal member, we'll give this certain number of acres, and um, and you can live here. And as time went on, uh, they you know the land was sold off, or it was divided so much uh, between uh, heirs that um, it's it sort you know they didn't really have any um, large um, reservation land where they could do something, where they could have economic development or or anything like that. So um, here in New Mexico, uh, our Indian Pueblos are essentially the Spanish land grants. When the Spanish came here in the late 1500s, uh, they essentially claimed the land for Spain. And um, we, we, so the boundaries of our uh, Pueblos, um, that's essentially what they are. So, um, so we are, um, Sovereign government. We we do uh, have uh, we have treaties with the United States. Uh, some some tribes and uh, Indian communities were signed by executive order. Uh, it depends on uh, the status of the land, but but regardless of what status it is, um, the U.S. government has a federal trust responsibility to tribes. So in other words, in exchange for all of the land that we took. Uh, we are going to we are going to be responsible for certain things for you, and healthcare is one of those. Um, I I worked for a pueblo here in New Mexico, the San Felipe Pueblo, and I ran their consolidated tribal government programs, and those are federal grants that we're eligible to receive uh, to run certain programs that we have um, on on the pueblo, and and uh, that is the responsibility of the government. Uh, one one final question before I let you go. I've seen a sure. number of reports over the years about um, difficulties organizing Native American communities and turning out the vote. And in some cases, uh, their votes could decide various races. My understanding is that some of these problems are structural and some are informed by um, partisanship. There's voter suppression. Can Can you speak to that issue as someone who has organized Native American communities and national politics in the past? Sure. Well, in New Mexico, we're very lucky that uh, we have laws in place that uh, really uh, help uh, to ensure that Native Americans' right to vote is unencumbered. And we have a Secretary of State right now, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, who, who cares tremendously about that. So 
Uh, we enjoy probably, um, you know, a lot of things that some states don't don't enjoy. I, I was reading an article in The Atlantic uh, some time ago that talked about the fact that they had passed a law in North Dakota to uh, require photo IDs. And there were members of Indian tribes who uh, didn't drive. Uh, they couldn't even get to a motor vehicle place to get an ID, a, you know, a state ID or, or all these things. Uh, although uh, they had been voting at the same, you know, location for 50 years, that everybody in the community knows who they are by face. So, um, so, so that is, those are things that, um, you know, the Republicans implement because they know that if more people get out to vote, uh, that they'll lose. And uh, in my experience, if I take, uh, if I'm able to drive 10 Native Americans to the polls, nine of them will vote for Democrats. And so uh, I think we just need to keep raising our voices and making sure that, uh, that we have that right to vote and that it's unencumbered. And, and I, I think that's, I mean, it's never going to end. We, we, it's, it's a constant issue that I think everybody needs to uh, speak up about. So I am always willing to speak up about that. Um, and as I said, it, it would be uh, nice if, if every uh, state were like New Mexico and cared about the Indian vote. Um, I believe I recall that the stories that I read were often about North Dakota, to tell you the truth. Deb Holland, I believe we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it.